0: Welcome to Lines on Music podcast. This is episode four: Street Music.
1: Approche-toi, je vais te chichaoter. J'ai plein d'histoires à te raconter. Oh, mais vite, mais toi! Si le silence est d'or, la parole donne beaucoup d'argent. Dans la tête des gens, la rumeur dort. La parole s'envole. La rumeur demeure. Oh. Mais vite, vite, toi! Si le silence est d'or. L'argent a dans la tête des gens La rumeur dans la parole s'envole La rumeur de
0: Most musicians do it at some stage or other. For some, it's even their primary income. From B.B. King to Tracy Chapman to Ed Sheeran, many household names in the world of popular music have cut their teeth busking. Playing on the street provides musicians with a unique performance environment, which requires particular strategies to draw and hold an audience. Not everyone can do it. In this episode, Street Music, we dig down into the cultural history of street entertainment and busking, and also find out what scientific methods and research approaches around behavioural analysis can tell us about what makes a successful busker. The music you've listened to here in the introduction is from the French group Les Fonfler Brass Band. During the 2019 edition of the Cork Jazz Festival, I came across these guys as they were just finishing off a set on the street and decided to get a quick take on busking from them. Yeah. <laughs> curious about street music, Well, in English we call it uh, busking, I think in French busking, you call yeah. it uh, jouer dans manche. la rue, mm-hmm. uh, manche, right. um, what makes a good busker or a good busking session, huh. uh, how do you
2: busk, well make a lot of money, make lot that's of, how that's you the, made, that, you are a good busker, no, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. no, because there's also a it can be only money, but it can be also a good way to make yourself vis- uh, visible. Uh, I mean, for us, we already find gigs and things, but today uh, the internet is so saturated with music that in the streets maybe uh, there's a space which is uh, not expandable uh, and not everybody can do it. So.
0: Um, I think, so you, you guys are busking with a brass band, so that's a, that's a spectacle, you know? Yeah, so that's and not a lot of people get to see brass bands. Yeah, and
2: we do it also because it's really the, the basis of the brass band, because you are loud, you are acoustically loud, so it's the best to busk yeah. I mean, it's the best to busk. In a city like Cork, where the people living here are really like liking music, are welcoming the music. Mm. Because in Toulouse, when you're loud, you the cops come. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So maybe you should stay here, maybe you're welcome here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, if I have something to say, go to Cork, it's good music lovers. In Toulouse, a lot of good musicians, not good music lovers, right. motherfuckers that call the cops. <laughs>
0: Le from Le Fontfleur Brass Band raised some good points on busking here, about visibility and reaching new audiences. And also how making money is certainly an aspect of street performance. But how do you make money busking? What encourages the passerby to part with their change? Is it a familiar repertoire or a lively performance? <music> Last year, in 2019, two different texts on busking came through my inbox around the same time, both from quite different epistemological perspectives. The first, a report authored by Dr. Elizabeth Bennett and Professor George Mackay, gives an interesting overview of the cultural history and the state of play of research in this area, particularly in the UK. The second, by Dr. Diana Omigi, Manuel Anglada-Tort, and Heather Thuringer, outlines an experiment measuring behavioural responses to a busking performer in the London Underground. You can find links to both of these pieces of research in the show notes on our website. The first interview in this episode, then, is with Dr. Elizabeth Bennett. Elizabeth is a lecturer in the Department of Literature, Film and Theatre Studies at the University of Essex. She has previously worked as a postdoctoral performance researcher at UEA, Surrey and Royal Holloway, researching street music, arts pedagogy and autoethnography, and the public arts program at the National Theatre in London. Her main areas of interest are contemporary performance in relation to space, place and landscape participatory performance practices, community arts, and performative writing and voice. Her doctoral thesis, Singing the South Downs Way, Affect in Performance and Practice, was an autoethnographic study of folk singing in Sussex. She performs regularly as an unaccompanied folk singer and as part of Natural Voice community choirs. The conversation here with Elizabeth took place fittingly on the street in Westminster, London. During the interview, we discussed William Hogarth's 1741 etching, The Enraged Musician, which if you're curious about it, you can see it on the Lines of Music website, where you'll also find a link to the report in the show notes. Okay, so let's get into that. So yeah, thanks for taking the the time to have a chat with me about this. Pleasure. Yeah, it's a really interesting report, really enjoyed it. Um, And so this is an AHRC funded report, right? Mm So maybe in the kind of first instance, you can tell us a little about the purpose of the report and what you were kind of aiming at trying to get to.
3: Definitely. So it came out of the Connected Communities project. Um, So that was a program lasting around seven years on which George Mackay was one of the leadership fellows. Um, And that's been looking at the sort of co-creation of of knowledge between academics and the community. Um, And this was a a follow on project called uh, Public Culture and Creative Spaces and wanting to look at the kind of performance of culture in the streets. Um, And George's career had kind of, one way or another, over the last 20 years of his writing, he's touched on lots of different elements of street music, but not had the sort of time to just do a a full project on it. Um, So he was looking to uh, get some sort of follow-on project for that and so he did so it was a nine month project looking at at street music and uh, one of the sort of purposes of the report was just to look at how much other people had written on the subject um, what the sort of main areas were that was sort of forming the, the academic discourse and then to see where we thought the sort of future research might go Um, and I think as soon as you begin you realize what a broad subject it is Um, so it was in some ways quite a challenge to just write an overview report but it's there really primarily as a literature review to see what's out there and then also to make recommendations one of which is that it it needs a book-length study definitely Mm. if not several
0: Yeah, I mean even as a literature review it is really interesting works really well um, but something that's noticeable is like how many different kind of fields that uh, you kind of touch on mm. in the literature. So there's like kind of some musicological things, um, a lot of kind of policy type mm, things. Lots of policy. Yeah, so there's kind of quite a wide range of literature. Yeah, um, definitely.
3: And it like, felt a bit like being in like, Alice in Wonderland, like to, to keep myself on track. Mm to not just keep wanting to go down different rabbit holes. It kind of but so, so much that was interesting, but it needed to be really just a snapshot of what was out there um, rather than being able to go in, in depth in, in some areas, which is a shame because that's obviously very tempting. Mm,
0: yeah, um, I mean, the, the report starts off with kind of a historical overview mm. of, uh, of busking or street music. And uh, that's really fascinating. So it goes back like basically yeah. a thousand years, more or less, or maybe more, actually. Right. Um, yeah. As long as streets uh, have existed. As long as streets. Street <laughs> there, so, yeah. um, how would you feel about giving a kind of historical overview of street music?
3: Um, so it's definitely there in the sort of ancient, ancient Greek, ancient Roman societies. Um, and then I suppose from an English perspective, because it is sort of primarily street music in the UK, um, and that was one of the way, one of the only ways that we could narrow it down in a sense. Um, but you're starting off kind of the first thing to really explode onto the scene is the troubadours. That's more of a European context. Um, but that's the sort of musicians wandering between courts and also coming to courts writing love songs, but writing songs about the sort of politics of the time as well. Um, and then that sort of translates into the weights. Um, so you begin to sort of around the Elizabethan time have town criers, if you like, that are keeping the night watch. And one of the ways they keep the night watch is to sound instruments on the hour of the hours so before the clocks. Um, and they, I think it's for around a hundred or so years, they have that main purpose, but then they begin to kind of have a craft what they're doing as well. And they begin to be asked to take part in civic parades. Um, so they become town waits. Um, so the waits are a, a sort of one particular point of, in the history of, the, of English street music.
0: And, and so even at that point, that was starting to kind of give patronage to the people who were, who would have been making music on the streets. So before that, it was purely kind of, I guess, what we would term as vagabonds or or
3: a mixture. So I think and that's one of the interesting things about street musicians, they come in and out of place and sort of in and out of favor. And that looking at that historical perspective helps you to see the contemporary perspective. But so you were either a sort of troubadour um, who had royal patronage or or the patronage of of a nobleman um, or noblewoman, actually, Mm -hmm. particularly in Europe um or you were a vagabond you know Or you were all you were traveling the streets and you so it was whether you had sort of protection whether you had um kudos if you like now um which you can see in in some of what's happening now in the busking scene um but yes definitely then the weights give it a sort of organization and you're also getting town guilds so you've got town guilds for for street musicians and they are doing a, a similar a similar sort of thing of organizing it and giving it structure, um, but then ostracizing people who either didn't have the means or um, the sort of connections to become part of the regional guilds of street musicians.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they start formalizing it and, you know, having, having guilds as well. I think actually even before the weights there, um, there were guilds yeah. for, yeah? Yeah. So,
3: yeah, so the guilds, I think the guilds definitely came in before the Waits. Um,
0: mm. And yeah, I think in the report it says that uh, people who would have been street musicians, kind of roaming troubadours, um, would have stopped playing during Lent. Yes. and that they would have went on like retreats to kind yeah. of learn new repertoire <laughs> yeah. of kind yeah. of yeah the like conferences for the troubadours. <laughs> yeah
3: that was definitely one of those rubber holes that I would have loved to have gone a bit further down but that was um, I think primarily European but, but British uh, English musicians would have traveled over um, but they were yes but because people weren't playing during Lent particularly court musicians or troubadours they would go to kind of troubadour school altogether. Troubadour
0: school sounds good. <laughs> Kind of like the uh, kind of anti-conservator, or something yeah,
3: like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I know it makes me feel like we need busking schools now. Yeah, I yeah. think that would be a really interesting meetups.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, there's some there's some nice images as well in the report, and uh, one of them in this historic section is uh, William Hogarth's uh, The Enraged Musician. Yes. Um, which is a really interesting image. It's uh, it's, a, it's a side of a building, and there's a uh, you know kind of. Uh, quite period dressed violinist with his score and kind of in his practice room and then outside there are people banging drums um and that's like an interesting dichotomy between the trained and the untrained musician which I is, so, is what yeah. you're illustrating kind of yeah. with that um, and
3: there are some really fascinating close um studies and an analysis of that picture uh, which again there wasn't space for but i think what's particularly interesting is um that he, the stand that he has his music on, um, so you can see that it's this sort of, you know, it's primarily there to say he can read music. Mm. He's doing it the legitimate way, the the educated way, whereas the people playing here are doing it, you know, by ear. Um, and so they're the untrained, they're the mm. sort of illegitimate musicians, which was fascinating to me, and also because I'm a, um, I'm a folk singer, but I don't read music, so I've always learned by ear. I kind of felt solidarity yeah. for the rabble. Um, but there's so much going on, and and uh, out, out of the snapshot, actually, it's a wider picture, but with the design, it needs to be like that. But up here on the roof are cats, and I think some chimney sweeps. So I think it's one of those pictures that you could look at forever and keep seeing, keep seeing different details. And that's the ballad sheet. So she's Uh, a ballad singer and a seller. So she's selling the ballad. She's singing mm, whilst pregnant with with a small child.
0: Um, Yeah, so that's something you talk about in the history as well. So that was profession for want of of a better word. So these ballad singers would have a printout of the music mm, with the lyrics and mm, they would sing the ballads and they would sell the sheet traditionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, But they were really, this is like really like look like the lowest class in society at this very much so
3: yeah yeah um but selling to quite a variety of classes i think that's an interesting element of it that maybe um some of those uh pictures of the time don't quite pick out it wasn't as divided as just the sort of trained upper classes being in the houses and the ballad singers being out on the streets they were also selling to a a variety of classes and and ballads were doing the rounds not just on the streets
0: yeah Um, yeah, that's really interesting and then also so at different periods through history um, you have anti-street music campaigners um, but also something that was interesting was the mention of these german bands on victorian streets as kind of precursors to brass bands Mm. Um, so what they were like like reed, like reed bands like saxophone bands brass bands what were they i'll Do be completely honest you <laughs> don't remember that one i
3: don't remember that one um no okay. i i remember being very interested in it from a, a sort of nationalism yeah. perspective but their actual style of playing
0: don't i don't know There's i've got a little quote here from it though well done. it's easier for me because <laughs> i've written things down yeah. <laughs> you're doing it off the cuff um yeah, so it talks about the, the origins of, uh, of brass bands in Britain. Um, and the quote says that it was the first engagement of working class working class people in instrumental art music. Yeah. So that's super interesting. So I guess you know, working class people taking up instruments, playing collectively um, with instruments that we now associate with, with art music. With
3: art so, music, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. All of this I think that's a really, and what was interesting about that is that's such a, I only really came across that just towards the end of writing that report and um and it was looking at the presence of german german bands in manchester uh and that was good because it moved a lot of the focus on the street music particularly historically is on london and actually there there is a bigger regional picture it's just that the research is either not being done or hasn't been quite sort of brought together as to begin to to sort of frame this regional this regional picture so yeah I think um, yes I will try to remember the,
0: the other thing that uh, uh, kind of comes up in the report then which kind of I guess leading through that in terms of the history is um, the association of these kind of bands with communities and, um, mm. and one example is like the Northern Irish Parades Commission mm. and how kind of marching bands there are represented in certain communities so yeah there's, there's lots of these different levels in terms of like street music and marching bands isn't there is like class there's kind of um, you know, religious divide. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's all these different kind of yeah. tiers of, kind of intersecting and communities. It's really.
3: And there's that kind of utopian democratic fantasy. Or not, and I think it's actually true. It's not always just fantasy. It is true. It is a very accessible art form. It, it does... Um, you know, it doesn't involve you having to go and pay money or walk through a door. Um, you are going to encounter it. But on the other hand, there are forms of it, um, like Northern Irish parade bands, where they're actually, you know, the the very nature of it is, is antagonistic, is is about divides. and mm-hmm. It's not about um, uh, sort of social cohesion. It's yeah. about identity, um, and 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 parading her identity which actually in itself isn't a bad thing but I think gives you pause if you're a researcher about making claims about things being kind of You know the fluffy version of community, because actually there is, you know, as as always, there are tensions when people parade their identities if there are contrasting or conflicting identities within one geographical space. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, the different communities within the larger community, yeah, within Mm. that geographical space, as you said. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, And I guess that history kind of brings us up to, you know, the modern city. You know, where we are, like here we are in, in Westminster. And actually, today when I was coming over here. Um, you know, w- I didn't hear any music, but there were lots of people out in the streets, you know, expressing themselves. So there were some Brexit people and some anti-Brexit people outside the Houses of Parliament, and there were some Socialist uh, Workers' Party placarding harding about uh, climate change. So there's yeah, a lot of people out in the streets, you know, expressing themselves. Um, and so in the report, you talk about kind of legislation that happens around music and performance. Um, and could you say a little bit about the legislation that happens or? Kind of legislation legislative acts that we have
3: yeah i mean it sort of it varies from 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 place to place and city to city which i think is one of the real complexities for street musicians is in any borough in london you could be coming under different legislations different rules um, whether that's led by the council and they usually are council-led um, and so, a lot of the advocacy uh, groups, like Keep Street Lives, Keep Streets Live, part of what they're trying to do is just educate musicians as to the different rules in different places. Um, Norwich, uh, which was great, was from, from a sort of study perspective, but also as a as a resident, you can busk anywhere. Um, within reason. So there are more informal codes. So that's often a way that things are sort of brought together. There are codes between um, buskers, between uh, the sort of CBD or the shopkeepers, and between the council. And so that's kind of, there's usually uh, codes around noise level, around amplification, around position, so location, like not standing in a shop door. Um, around not repeating the same material over and over again, also yeah, for the for workers. Yeah.
0: The, the sanity
3: of the,
1: the
3: <laughs> Yeah, <shopkeeper. laughs> yeah. Um, but what's really nice about that in Norwich then, because you don't need a permit, because you can busk anywhere as long as you're kind of following the rules loosely, is that uh, this element of, for me, of teenage creativity that's something I really enjoy a lot seeing with busking is either a group of mates coming together and playing as a band or you know young boys or girls out with their instruments and they're learning and they're able to just get that experience of playing to an audience and I think that as soon as you begin to put in even if it is just okay you need a permit and it's only 20 pounds well you can say that but I know because I remember being that age that if there had been one block to it I wouldn't have done it you know it it, because it takes It just adds that level of, do I really want to do this? Am I good enough to do this? And it makes it straight away much less accessible. Whereas if you just think, okay, right, fine. I've looked on the web, it turns out I can just pitch up and play. Then, you know, you're going to get this spontaneity and creativity that I think legislation instantly begins to dispel.
0: Mm, Yeah. And there's an interesting quote somewhere in the report about people playing outside, um, this isn't to do with the legislation, but just about the idea of performing outside, that the people going past aren't your audience, no. um, they haven't come to see you, and that it's a great kind of training ground or proving ground that you need to make them your audience, you need to like grab their attention to make them stop, and that's, that's a really interesting idea. Mm, yeah. That
3: conversion, yeah. that kind of conversion of passerby to audience is such an interesting yeah. aspect of street music, and where that's really unique i think nearly nearly always in a different context people will have either chosen or paid to see you and neither is happening in the street Um, and i think that's one of the sort of burgeoning aspects of this of this whole topic that i became very fascinated by was audience research which is growing generally in the arts but then it's so interesting when you begin to apply that to street music because what is an audience member in that context and how would you even begin to you know how do you begin to give them surveys you know they're not walking past you in the door Mm. you know and so i know that i've definitely had moments in my life that have been really memorable to do with street music or taken me out of a particular mood i was in um and transported me but i don't know that i necessarily stopped and listened Mm. I might have just walked past or I might have walked further down the road and then stopped to listen. Yeah,
0: Or slowed down as he passed. Or slowed down as yeah. I passed.
3: Exactly. Or just smiled. Yeah. Maybe it just, I just smiled. And how do you begin to kind of quantify or qualify that for a study? And how do you begin to see that? And I think that's where um, there's some very interesting work going on from the sort of geography field in, in ethnography. And I think really having to sort of watch and watch the way that people are responding to buskers is one of the best ways to do that because um, you can be an audience member and and not look like one. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um that's quite interesting about, you know, I guess from the geographical kind of mm. perspective. Um one of your sections is about street music and placemaking. Um and one of the mm. authors that you refer to is Tannenbaum. Mm. And um he talks about transitory communities, um yeah, and, and music in liminal spaces. So that's a really interesting idea as well. So yeah. um yeah the underground the tube system the as, an, as system. an example of a limited yeah, space where, where people are experiencing music um, and, that, and that's interesting because it talks about music in routinized and alienating environments because they are quite the, the tube is a you know for want of be a better word quite unpleasant place to be in um, and yeah i've never stopped to listen to someone playing music but i've often you know you hear them in the distance and it's quite it's quite uh it's quite enjoyable because it changes the ambience and yeah. kind of breaks things up a little bit. It
3: stops you feeling like sardines, just yeah. sort of passing through and passing out. I think there's a sort of humanising element to that yeah. in what is a, quite an alienating environment. Yeah, yeah that's... Um,
0: and it's disrupting the kind of the, the space in a way. It's kind of like making it a place of culture and kind mm. of an experience. And yeah, that's something else in the report to talk about. That busking and street performance and street music is one place where people can congregate to experience culture regardless of race yeah. class sexuality you know any kind of division that you can think of they can all meet in that one place so that's yeah. very interesting and, and yeah and the tube is a place quite like that actually so experience music there so. Is.
3: yeah and the way that I think that that routine and the sort of alien environment that's so felt in modern life where we just don't have time you know we're nearly always we're just passing each other because we need to get somewhere and if you do hold an audience as a busker that audience is made up of so many different aspects and so many different demographics and they've just come together for that one moment and then they'll disperse but that in itself I think is contributing to the well-being of both the place and the community because there's actual interactions positive in-person interactions that just don't happen as much as they used to um, and so that's i think quite a profound claim for busking and for street music to be to still be bringing that um, within that um, as, as george and i both point out at different bits in the report there are still um, things that are not so equal in street music um, not necessarily from an audience perspective but Um, in terms of, I think the research is less than two out of ten buskers are women. Mm. Um, And uh, if you look at sort of the history of brass bands and that being quite gendered, um, I think that street music has quite a gendered aspect to it, particularly historically, which some of which is about pulling out um, some neglected narratives in that history. People like the like ballad sellers who were um, thought to be predominantly women so some of that is doing that but some of that is looking at now and thinking okay yes we can say anyone can turn up on the street and play music and anyone can turn up and listen um hopefully if you have that sort of legislation if you haven't like gone down the auditioning route um but will are there barriers into how people will do that or whether people will do that and is one of those big barriers being alone on the streets as a woman
0: Mm. You know, and
3: so it, it can't be sidestepped. It, you know, it, it is one of the questions we need to be asking. Mm-hmm. Um, would policy and legislation enable more access? Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen evidence of that. What I've mostly felt researching the report is that I just saw evidence of policy, policy and legislation sort of hindering, uh, certainly creativity and definitely access. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, there are there are pros and cons and i think one of the pros might be that if it's a spot on the south bank that you have to perform or audition for to get a license um, but it's kind of run for you and you go there and it's somewhere that you feel safe and visible and supported maybe you are more likely to go and do that as a woman than just pitch up on the side of the street
0: yeah so yeah so kind of state provision spaces. um given by the metropolitan yeah. space that are specific for busking that are within kind of safe areas yeah. and yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess like you said there's definitely scope for more research on that yes. um, one of the other things that came up in it was um, the question of whether or not being a street musician um, whether or not that implies being an inferior musician or <laughs> I- implies an inferior musical status yeah. which is quite an interesting question um, I mean I, I I would probably safely say that um, conservatories or music schools around uh, <laughs> the UK don't advocate their their students to go out and play go in the, the street. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I'm sure many of them do, you know, while they're studying, you know, for fun or... I just
3: passed a woman on Westminster Bridge playing the accordion and in her um, case was a sign saying, I'm over from New Zealand um, studying and I'm playing for money to continue my music studies.
0: So. Mm. Yeah, so, they're, so, they're so they do that. <laughs> so they um, do that, yeah. And actually, someone else I spoke to for this episode of the podcast, um, the, they did a study with a busker, and she was busking as one way to fund her studies as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so people are doing it. I don't think she was a music student, but, um, but, yeah, so it's a way of generating some income, at least.
3: Definitely, and then you can see that if you've got to pay for a permit to do it, you yeah. know, it's, you, that's having to kind of out outlay money right from the start if you're trying to do it in order to get money or because you're a bit hard up or because you need money whilst you're at university you're not you're already there's a barrier mm-hmm. and i think that's the problem um and and something we have to think through even when things sound like they make sense of policy and legislation it's about knowing what you do when you just put even one barrier
0: mm-hmm.
3: yeah i think you just instantly lose um an,
0: access, an, an, an for access. Certain people. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, in terms of like the quality and the inferiority, or whether or not street musicians are inferior to concert musicians, for example, there's you know you, that quite famous example, and you talk about it in New report is Joshua Bell on yeah. the Washington Underground, and you know he's playing as a world-class musician, playing high art repertoire on a very expensive instrument, yeah. and makes some thirty odd dollars. So, so. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's like the setting. It context. It's yeah, setting, context. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. yeah.
3: And I think to be fair, I always feel like the people that walk past him, whenever anyone just discusses that or analyses that, they get quite a rough time and I just think, well, like, yeah, but also people are busy. Yeah, it's odd,
0: <laughs> yeah. you know.
3: That you know, maybe maybe it did make them smile. Maybe they just walked past and, and they enjoyed it and 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 this is the interesting thing about when this idea of exchange and money is I know, I know that I have walked past street musicians that I've enjoyed and not paid money to, and I also know that not all of them are doing it for financial reasons. Yeah. So it's it's an aspect of it, but it's not the be all and end all. And the focus on, I feel, like in the article about Joshua Bell, and then quite a lot of the discourse around it is on the fact of the money he made. But, but as you
0: said, is that, that, be is all that the all. value? Yeah. Is that
3: what we're always going to take value down yeah. to? Yeah,
0: I guess it's in this. Um, Society where we measure things, we quantify mm. things. It's just the easy, the easy marker of, mm. of the success of that of example. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was how technology is changing busking. Um, so, so now we do often see musicians with loop pedals. Um, which I quite enjoy. You also often see musicians with play-alongs, which I enjoy less so because <laughs> I, I associate it with like practicing. Yes. But I also appreciate if someone's a singer and they're not an instrumentalist, then it's hard for them to have accompaniment. So, but yeah, the loop station I'm kind of well, yeah, I'm more open. I think loop pedals
3: is like the kind of entry drug for technology for yeah. everyone. Everyone's like, oh, I'd. I don't mind loop pedals. Or, oh, I'd have a loop pedal. You know, that <laughs> yeah. just feels like everyone's OK with that. But really, when you begin to, to pick away, yeah, I think the sort of karaoke style play along, I think things that are over amplified, I yeah. get it. You know, I then definitely both George and I, when we wrote this report, we didn't want it to be a kind of promotional report for street music. There are aspects that both of us find difficult about it. And I think one of them is definitely over amplified music. Mm.
0: Um, yeah, I think in Grafton Street in Dublin, which is like a main kind of pedestrian thoroughfare in the city. Um, as far as I'm aware, busking is allowed, I don't know if you have to register for the pitch, but um, as long as it's not amplified, because yeah. I think they had a problem with people with quite loud sound systems <laughs> and, yeah.
3: And that, you know, in a sense, it's always evolved and it, and it will continue to evolve. And that's that's fascinating, the craft. Loop pedals just add such a different level of craft, particularly if you're a solo player a or a solo singer.
0: Um, not actually from here, but there are some cafes down there. Oh
3: yeah, sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Street interactions. Street
3: interactions, <laughs> yeah. Um, talking to people, face <laughs> face to face. Um, yeah, I. Th- the, so. The, this, the noise of the modern street is louder and so busking is going to be louder you know and, and I see that um, but I also think that it, it can and does detract from both the enjoyment and the performance quality um so it's a bit of a nominal and, ah. and then and that's I think another reason the, the the whole move of street music down into the subway down into the undergrounds is fascinating about sort of the hostility that was going. Going on towards it in the sort of streets of Victorian London. And then suddenly there's this new subterranean Mm. place where they can go and they're away from the noise, Um, they're away from people hassling them. But this adds to, because the majority of the people first using the underground are from these sort of working, educated classes, it adds to this idea of the street musician as, a, you know, a sort of lower order or, you know, a vagrant. Um, so there's always this sort of pros and cons approach to anything that street musicians are doing. But yes, in a, in, in the underground or in in tunnels or anything like that, you, you then don't need amplification because you've got the space yeah, doing some reverb, of
0: that for yeah, you. Yeah, space that will have some reverb, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I guess probably finally maybe we could we could kind of tell me your like takeaways having like done the study, maybe your takeaways from it, maybe I guess ideas or suggestions for others who might be interested in researching in this area, the kind of yeah. avenues one might take, or kind of recommendations from the study if you have some of those.
3: Um, I think the sort of pressing area for me Although I really enjoyed the historical research, and it certainly was able to kind of highlight things that I might look at now, but we're living in a time of sort of increasing isolation, social isolation. Uh, Lots of um, issues around stuff like Brexit, where we're talking about societal divisions. And here is this, you know, really quite fantastic art form you know in street music where communities can for even if it's transitory come together and mix and mix in ways that maybe you know um sort of gig or a concert doesn't enable and yeah that feels to me one of the most pressing inquiries is is this is street music beneficial to well-being for places and communities and i would argue it is but that's certainly an interesting avenue for research and if so are we doing what we can from a kind of cultural policy and legislation side to enable that rather than to hinder it? Um, those for me feel like the sort of takeaway points. Um, and then again, around, again, this sort of access thing, because there was a lot of moments during the research where I felt very like, God, yes, this is such a democratic, utopian art form. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't the streets amazing? But I mean, the streets have never been equal. Just the society's never been equal. So, there has to be moments where you actually begin to pin that down and say, okay, yes, it is exciting and and, uh, and utopian in, in places, but in other places, okay, some of the research coming out um, and the research about it being fewer than two out of 10 buskers, I think that's globally of women. That comes from Street Music Map, um, which is a, social media presence, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, that people send in images or videos of street musicians they've seen around the world. And Street Music Map is, is collating those. And that is that would be a fantastic resource, I would say, for anyone just interested in, in thinking more about busking, particularly, is to, is to go and check out Street Music
0: Map. Yeah, to see examples of others. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, and will you do more work on this yourself? Do you think at some stage, or are, are you going to shelve this for a little while? Or
3: uh, we're hoping to. Yeah, I think um, from from the conference, um, from discussions we had there, and then from the report, the the thing that yeah, the thing that appealed to both of us, I think, and felt pressing and relevant, was to look at busking as a as a sort of force for force for good is the wrong way of putting it, but as a sort of f- Way of a way of enabling these moments of interaction that wouldn't otherwise happen in everyday life, I think. To kind of have spontaneity in what is becoming an increasingly controlled society and controlled environment. Um, and the sort of joy of it. And then the stories of, I can't remember which city it is, but somebody was saying at the conference that busking had been banned in a particular city centre and not long afterwards, they'd begun to kind of pipe music through it's just like that so if that's happening um then we need to be making the case really strongly for why Street music in its live form um and in its sort of freest form is going to be the best way forward and I think academics have a really strong uh, position and case for that and and that it's it should be a legitimate area of study and i think part of why there hasn't maybe necessarily been the research certainly from a sort of musicology point of view is as you say this association with street music being a a slightly inferior quality or inferior um
0: great well thank you very much for your time and thanks for telling me all about it thank you um hopefully we'll see more about this soon cool Cool.
3: thanks
0: So that interview with Elizabeth took place prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, so her final comments on living in a time of increasing social isolation added to the now almost total halt to live music and venues is particularly prescient and really challenges us to consider what role street music can have in bringing arts and culture back to society. The following conversation with Dr. Diana Omigi and Heather Thuringer focuses on their 2019 publication, The Busking Experiment, a field study measuring behavioral responses to street music performances, which is published in the journal Psychomusicology, Music, Mind and Brain. In contrast with Elizabeth's cultural history and policy-focused work, this work takes a much more scientific look at the topic, and Diana and Heather provide a lot of rich detail about their experiment and the methodological approaches used. So just to give you uh, two brief bios about Diana and Heather, Dr. Diana Omigi is a cognitive neuroscientist and member of the Music, Mind and Brain Research Group at Goldsmiths, where she co-directs the MSc program in Music, Mind and Brain with Daniel Mullensiefen. Diana's research interests revolve around the behavioral, sociological, and neural correlates of music-induced emotions and the aesthetic experience. Heather Thuringer is a music curator, researcher and graduate of the MSc Perception and Cognitive Neuroscience of Music program at the Department of Psychology at Goldsmiths. These are two separate conversations which I have edited together. The conversation begins with Diana who gives some context in the research unit that this work comes out of and also gives an overview of the methods and extant research in the field. The interview then switches over to Heather to get her description of the experiment and the choice of repertoire before switching back again to Diana to get some more info on the types of modelling used and the research findings.
4: So I'm um, in the psychology department and uh, I'm in a, the Centre for Performing Arts, and Performing and Creative Arts. And basically, there's a whole bunch of us looking at yeah different... Uh, uh, performing arts and how um, the sort of psych- psychological and neuroscientific correlates of our appreciation of these arts but also our motivations to produce art um, Within that center, I'm part of the Music, Mind and Brain group and we are specifically interested in music and um, our interests are very wide-ranging from um, determining how musically sophisticated any given person is through uh, psychometric um, techniques to, in my case for instance, um, trying to better understand the neuroscientific um, or neural correlates of aesthetic and epistemic emotions when listening to music. And I can unpack that, but <laughs> uh, just to say what that is in a nutshell. Mm. Um, in terms of my co-authors, um, one of them is basically a master's student on the master's program that I uh, direct or co-direct with my colleague, Daniel Mullensiefen. Um, so this master's program um, is called The Music Mind... The Music, Mind, and Brain, <laughs> MSC, and we're basically teaching students methods and obviously the knowledge they need to be able to design um, their own research uh, studies looking at yeah music listening behaviours. Um, the other co- uh, co-author, uh, so the first sorry, the first co-author is Heather. Cheeringer, and uh, she's the master student who is now completed the, the program. The other co-author was a former MMB master student who is now completing a PhD, uh, about to complete a PhD in uh, Berlin. And his actually was the fantastic idea to look at busking in the first place. So he cares a lot about um, how we make decisions around music, why we decide we like that track or we prefer the other. And um, he was interested in um, looking at this in sort of everyday life. And my motivation was, well, as someone who cares about how music can sort of move us or, you know, why we appreciate it, uh, my motivation was to see if we could find new interesting methods with which to actually measure this in an ecologically valid way.
0: Mm. Yeah, and actually um, talking about um, kind of Measuring it, um, I think somewhere in the article you refer to this, um, the approach that you use in the study is the the behavioral economics of music. Yeah. Um, So maybe you could kind of elaborate on on what you mean by the behavioral economics of music.
4: So um, this is very much, again, around the sort of idea of choices and decision-making around music. And there have been a number of uh, researchers um, who've, in different disciplines, but primarily economics, or um, who have tried to understand how decisions are made. And they've used behavioral methods because sometimes they want to be able to validate those models that they have um, sort of from theoretical bases. And <clears throat> the idea, which actually is very much um, Manu's, um, the point of Manu's, the, or the cr- uh, crux of his thesis, is to see if we can apply those sorts of methods, similar, you know, paradigms and methods, to um, examining how we make decisions about the value of music and it basically boils down to um, rather than having people rates on a scale of one to seven or six how much they appreciate that track um, almost getting them to put their money where their mouth is their feet where Mm. their mouth is or and yeah looking at actually what happens when you study music listening with those in those ways
0: yeah so that's kind of I guess what's maybe different about this study. Um, I think you mentioned it somewhere in the article that a lot of work that might be related to this is usually done in a laboratory setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys have chosen to take this out into the field and see it in the, in the real environment that it would be you know, happening. Um, so maybe, um, actually we didn't really maybe talk about the kind of overview of the study. So would you be able to just maybe give a, a short kind of overview of what the study is? And then maybe we could talk about the kind of the design and the methodology about it.
4: Yeah. So the study um, wanted to explore basically a couple of factors we thought might influence um, the donating behaviours of uh, passers-by while someone was busking. and. As we've established, it was basically a study um, in the field. Uh, A busker was there performing over a series of 24 days, not consecutive, but um, over a month or so. And that was... Um, about as naturalistic as it could get people could go past and you know do how engage how they normally would with the performance uh, the performances but otherwise we controlled it quite carefully so the uh, busker was basically um, either performing music that was familiar we you know we'd estimate it would be more or less familiar to passers-by um, they would also either be performing in a very expressive way or in a not very expressive way, so quite restricted body movements. And basically, these were two factors um, that had been shown over and over again to um, influence how people um, evaluated or um, yeah appreciated music in the lab. And we were curious to see if those sorts of uh, rules of thumb, <laughs> and I can tell you what direction it was in, what we tend to find in the lab, but just to see if those sorts of findings would replicate um, yeah. Mm -hmm. in the field and yeah involved like i said the busker performing um, and basically um, uh, measuring first of all how many people donated um, during these blocks where they were performing in the manners that i've just described um, and also how much they donated so we had a way of sort of um, capturing the money that had been donated to that particular block and counting it later so we could relate it to the different conditions. Um, yeah.
0: So you mentioned that previous laboratory studies had suggested that um, familiarity yeah. was an indicator of how much someone or how likely someone would be to. And so are, are there a lot of studies um, like this or?
4: Yeah. So um, generally, the phenomenon has been coined the mere exposure effect, Um uh, Zajonk, uh, found that people tended to like things that they were a little bit familiar with, um, things that they were a little bit familiar with. So everything from, you know, visual arts to music uh, to other sorts of, I don't know, design. Um, and there's different theories as to why that might be, processing fluency, you've seen it before, you've kind of figured it out already, and when you presented with it again, your brain thinks that you, you've done it all by yourself the first time, or whatever it is. I mean, there's different theories, like I said, but certainly there seemed to be this pattern where people liked things better the second or the third time around. I should say, actually, that um, since then, there's been some nuance to that finding um, where we see that there are individual differences um, with regard to whether people find uh, things better the second or third time around. And there's specific personality traits that would predict that you wouldn't necessarily uh, be yeah, more appreciative of something more familiar, um, but rather actually you'd you'd actually appreciate things better if they were novel. Mm. So that actually, um, when we get to the findings, is one thing that uh, is worth touching on.
0: Mm. Um, So yeah, so they're effectively your your two hypotheses as you outline them here, the familiarity effects of music. Um, And then the other one was to do with um, expressivity. So uh, maybe you could tell us about that as well. Yeah.
4: So um, at some point, uh, music psychology researchers thought it might be interesting to see just what, um, um, just how much the actual visual uh, component of a performance adds to, or you know, of a music listening experience, adds to the listening experience. Um, and they found in a recent uh, review study. Um, from Platts and Copiates, they actually found a huge effect of, you know, the visual information one gets during a performance um, about 0.5, which is, you know, means nothing <laughs> um, to a, someone who th- isn't carrying out these kinds of studies, but yeah, considered sizable. And it basically suggested that um, what what the data was showing then actually was that the sort of more expressive uh, a performer was or just the extent to which it's sort of, um, there was a bit more going on in the performance um, predicted, yeah, the sort of uh, value that people assigned to,
0: yeah, a performance. Mm. That's really interesting. It's like the idea that we we also hear a little bit with our eyes. Exactly, You know, you're kind yeah. of, uh, you know using the visual cues to kind of, um, yeah, emphasize more the music, you have to experience it more. That's really interesting. So let's jump over here to hear a little bit more from Heather about the experiment, how it was set up, and the rationale for the song selection
5: sure, so uh the gist of it is that um we used sonia the the busker as um as kind of the stimulus, and we went into the London underground uh, for twenty four sessions of about one hour each and um recorded um footage of people donating money to Sonia um, based on her songs that she was singing, and we manipulated her uh, body movement and the songs that she sang in order to um, kind of investigate our hypotheses. Um, We wanted to study uh, whether familiar music was a little bit um, more Lucrative than unfamiliar music and whether a uh, body movement played a part at all. Um, and we assumed that um, Our hypothesis was that both would be true um, more expressive body movements would equal higher donation amounts and more donors and um, more familiar music would also equal more donors and more um, donated money um, and uh, so Sonia Sonia and I chose well I chose the songs based on our pilot study in a survey um, a previous study before this experiment began. Uh, we chose uh, eight songs to uh, show um, similar music by the same artist who had a huge hit on the same album. So for instance, we used Lady Gaga's applause from her um, album. And on the same album, there was a song called Fashion, which was not popular, was not released as a single. But according to our survey results, um, people thought it sounded very similar um, to Applause. So we used that as a stimulus. So we had uh, eight songs total. Sonia would randomly sing one of the songs based on a Latin square um, format. So we could kind of counterbalance all of our conditions across sessions Um, and then Uh, We recorded her uh, busking and recorded the the busking bag that people would put the money into. And that's how we determined our um, dependent variables, how much money people donated and how many people Mm -hmm. donated.
0: So so the two hypotheses that you had were that more popular music would generate more money. So more familiar music would generate more money than unfamiliar music. And the second one being that the more kind of... um, Physically active, the performer, the more money it would generate. Exactly. Fundamentally. Okay, that's great. And then, so you mentioned there also that there was a pilot study beforehand to um, to select the music. Was that done by you guys as well, or had that?
5: Yes. So it was a Qualtrics survey that we created that basically um, pitted um, ten artists. We used ten artists for that study, and each artist had uh, four songs, one big hit um, from um, the two thousands onward. Um, and it had to hit, uh, our criteria was that it had to be in the top 10 of a UK chart. Uh, so we picked uh, female fronted bands or female artists who had had a top 10 charting single in the UK in the 2000s or 2010s. And then um, from that same album had three other tracks that did not get released as singles who so therefore we assume they'd be less uh, familiar to the average person who maybe just heard Lady Gaga on the radio but didn't actually go on by the album. So then we had uh, survey respondents rate the familiarity and the uh, similarity to the hit tracks and to the um, like unreleased tracks um, in order to gauge uh, which unreleased tracks were most like the hits. Um, and were least familiar to people. So we wanted something that was very unfamiliar, like that particular song was very unfamiliar to the listener, but it also sounded somewhat similar to the hit song by that same artist.
0: I guess, of course, because it would, would have been recorded with some of the same personnel, it would have the same sonic qualities because it's on the same record.
5: Exactly, yeah. and a uh, similar time frame, so the you know, singers' voices to be at creative wise, it would be very similar. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it would definitely have the same feel. So it was important that we picked something from the same um, album, so that we could kind of control for that a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. So in the paper, in the the first table, actually, you have the list of the artists that were in the in the first selection, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's quite interesting. So we have you know lots of familiar names: uh, Ellie Goulding, Kelly Clarkson, Cody Minogue, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Lily Allen, Little Boots, Pink. And then there's a, kind of an outlier here as well, which is uh, Cindy Loper. So I guess mm-hmm. th- of the four tunes, uh, "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" was going to be the big would be the big hit that pe- everybody would know. And then there are three right. other tunes from the same album. Um, but you excluded Cindy Loper from this uh, selection, right?
5: Yes, because um, it was very familiar. It was the most familiar song that people rated on the survey. However, um felt a little unfair to use it because it was so much older than all of the other um, songs that we chose. And so it had more exposure to uh, the general public. And um, it was just too old, too too different <laughs> than what we were looking for. We also um, couldn't find a really good um, other songs from that same album that also sounded very familiar that weren't um, released as covers by other artists. So we we wanted to make sure that the the unfamiliar tracks, um, the so called unfamiliar tracks, weren't a cover or uh, someone hadn't covered it um, in order to make it more familiar.
0: And then, so the the artists that you ended up with, you didn't use all of the rest of them, right? You only used how many in the end?
5: Uh, We used eight songs altogether. So the four hit songs from the four artists, which were um, Katy Perry's Firework, uh, Lady Gaga's Applause, uh, Kelly Clarkson's Alone and Pink's Sober were our four hit tracks. Um, And then Pink's I Don't Believe You was the song that was deemed most similar by the survey respondents and uh, was most unfamiliar to survey respondents. Uh, likewise, Fashion from Lady Gaga, um, Katy Perry's Hummingbird Heartbeat, and Kelly Clarkson's Stronger, uh, I'm sorry, Stronger was originally the song that uh, was the hit song for, for Kelly Clarkson alone was the unfamiliar song. So, the uh, that was how those songs were determined, based on that ratio of um, familiarity and um, similarity. Okay. Um, and so, your your um, did you, your
0: busking friend have any input in this, or you, you just did this purely based on the on the kind of pilot study?
5: It was. Uh, I did consult with her. Um, however, her response was, "I'll sing anything. So don't worry about it." <laughs> okay, so she cool. was very, very cooperative in that aspect, and uh, she did a great job. So uh, we basically, the only kind of criteria that we laid down uh, for Sonia's, um, for the songs for the study, was that they were female-fronted bands or female artists, just so it would fit her register a little bit better. Um, It would sound more natural coming from a female in the busking, you know, in the underground, um, and it just wouldn't seem out of place uh, lyrically to have a, a female voice singing a male part, for instance, so...
0: Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then so can you tell us maybe how you, you set up the experiment and how you kind of maintained consistency across all the different sessions with the voice, for example, and, and how, right. you, how you managed that?
5: So after uh, the songs were selected, uh, I went through and found karaoke versions of all the tracks. So basically, um, it was either a karaoke, actually karaoke version that we had made or uh, stem stem tracks uh, from the original recording uh, that we found online somewhere. And um, once we had the instrumental tracks, uh, Sonia took it home and recorded vocals on top um, in her uh, house with a little bit of sp- space in the a little bit of reverb in there to make it sound a little bit more live in the area. And then um, for the actual study, she lip synced to those tracks so that the audio itself was the same across all conditions and all days, all sessions. Um, the only thing that has, that would change is the expressivity and the uh, familiarity of the songs. Uh, so that way we can kind of control a little bit for um, for outliers in terms of um, mm-hmm. you know, what works and, what
0: and then it. so in situ. Then you can you tell us about where you you know where you situated yourselves for the experiment. So you know I guess. Contrary to what a lot of people would do in your area, they would do laboratory experiments, right? So this was in the field, yeah.
5: Exactly, and that was kind of the thing that sets us apart. Uh, it was one of the first field experiments on the subject, and it was great because we were able to, um, you know, have real world responses from people who didn't know that they were taking part in an experiment, which you can't get in the laboratory or experimental setting usually. Um, so we set it up very um, inconspicuously. Uh, there was a camera on um, on a tripod that was only aimed at uh, essentially the busking bag where the donations were being given and the feet of the people passing by because we didn't want to um, invade anybody's privacy, uh, anything like that. So there was a camera that was aimed at the busking bag. And that's how we uh, counted number of donors later and uh, just made sure that we had Uh, everything recorded for uh, just research purposes. Um, So there was that camera and um, a busking bag that we would donate, that the money donated would go into and some scarves that we would use to kind of separate uh, different sessions and different songs so that we would kind of be able to uh, gauge very easily um, what condition um, the money came in for each, uh, each song, whether it was of an expressive song that was very familiar or an unfamiliar song that was very non-expressive.
0: So you did it for, 20, is it 24 times is that you run the experiment?
5: Yes, 24 sessions. Um, started at uh, late June of 2018 and went into early August. And uh, it was mostly weekdays that we did the experiment and relatively uh, similar time um, for each session. It was usually in the afternoon, around two or three. And that way we could kind of get a consistent um, number of people that would normally be commuting around that time of day. Every day we would have a similar amount of people for the most part. Um, It was also really easy to uh, get that um, particular busking pitch booked um, the way that the London... Uh, buskers work uh, as you have to book pitches using an online queue system and so it can be hard to get some of the more um, lucrative popular spots because all the buskers are kind of competing for it Uh, Waterloo was a good location because it was easy to book Um, we could consistently get there pretty much the same time every day that we wanted to go in Um, and then that way everything was consistent across all of our sessions Uh, the location was the same So we would have the same acoustics, um, the same visuals, uh, everything would be pretty similar. Um, So it worked out very well that we were able to use uh, the same pitch for all of the sessions. So it was uh, about an hour long for each session. And that included um, setup, the actual performance of the songs, uh, the counting of the money and teardown.
0: I mean, that's actually an interesting point there. So um, the environment remained the same. So when I began reading the article, I was thinking, you know, I wonder why they did this in the underground rather than outside, but obviously as you begin to read the article, you want the the whole situation to be replicated as closely as possible uh, on each occasion. So the underground does actually right. um, present itself as a really logical place for an experiment like this.
5: Yes, and we also wanted to make sure that um, weather didn't play a factor. Um, we didn't want to have to cancel sessions because it was raining, although it was in the summer and it was very hot. <laughs> so we didn't have rain too much, but it was very hot in the in the underground. Um, but it did it did help and we, we wouldn't have as much uh, street noise too. So it was kind of more of a, a clean environment for us to to use. So I guess a controlled,
0: clean environment outside of a, lab, a laboratory. Yeah.
5: Right. Yeah. yeah. As as close as we could get. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Being outside would be a little bit more difficult. So I'm glad we we're able to find a, an interior location.
0: Um, and so yeah, you just mentioned there briefly some of the the literature that was you know kind of supporting your original hypotheses and the other studies that may have been done around this. And you didn't just look, I guess, at kind of music psychology related things. You were looking at ethnomusicology Mm -hmm. articles, some economics articles, I think. Quite a a wide range of literature. That was um,
5: partially because there just isn't a lot of um, study uh, around busking, period. Um, And what there is, uh, is distributed pretty widely among economic journals and um, uh, just all the different like uh, financial journals and and things like that. Um, So it was in order to have any kind of um, literature to to springboard off of, we had to go pretty broad in terms of subject. Um, But I think that made the experiment better because we had a little bit more focus on what we needed to do um and we it made our hypotheses stronger when we were building it
0: um so here i'm going to jump back to diana again um to get a little bit more info about the modeling and the types of analysis that they used so yeah we're going to hear from diana about that and then get into the uh the findings of the actual uh of the research
4: Uh, quite a chi square um basically allows you to um, determine Whether, you know, it's very good with percentages, for instance, you have a single number and you basically want to infer um, the extent to which that should be considered, I don't know, uh, proportional (laughs) to to what you would expect. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that over um, four different sessions, we wanted to know whether, you know, there were significant differences in the number of people that donated across those four sessions for instance and it's you, you know it's unlikely to be 25 25 25 25% in each condition but you know when does it become a significant difference is it when it's you know 30 and 20 or is it another number and so a chi square test um, looks at the percentages in this case over the days percentage distributions over the days mm-hmm. people that, that gave to each group to each condition And then we use that to estimate whether there was really, we can say anything, was different across those conditions. Mm -hmm. The other analyses, so-called linear mixed models, um, was trying to account, is basically um, a sort of more popular um, technique in psychological sciences is called an an analysis of variance. The, the, what's nice about a linear mixed uh, model is that it accounts for both so called fixed effects and random effects. Um, and the fixed effects we cared about were the effect of familiarity and the effect of um, uh, expressivity of body movement. But the things we didn't particularly care about were, you know, the pieces so we happen to select you know four hits and for matched unfamiliar hits um we want to model the variance that results from us selecting those four particular hits but we don't actually care about if there was a main effect of kate perry <laughs> katie perry's you know track versus someone else's and so you kind of, this model this kind of technique allows you to model for any sort of unexpected uh, sources of variance um but really, m- therefore, increasing the sensitivity um, for you to be able to find effects that are of interest.
0: Okay. That's really interesting. I mean, there are just common methods that you would use in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so then I guess the the discussion and the findings then I guess is quite interesting mm. because your hypotheses were based on the literature which mm. would suggest that, yes, if music is familiar and if people were expressive in how they performed mm. that they would likely be more economically successful in yeah. a busking context. But then what you found was not that, right? No. So if you could tell us what the findings and maybe how you discussed it in relation to the literature maybe?
4: Yeah. So our first finding was uh, there was no effective uh, well again perceived uh, assumed familiarity um, of the tracks to the to the listeners so how popular the tracks should be um, so basically compared to the theory so where the theory suggested that you should potentially like something more because you're already familiar with it um, the finding in, in, in the field was that this wasn't the case oh, this isn't the case um, like I said there's some nuance to this finding in recent um, years um, the suggestion is that not only some people will actually begin to like things less the more they hear it. And those people are people who are high in the openness personality, the personality trait we we call openness. So psychologists like to characterize um, different dimensions in which we differ in terms of our behaviors, emotions, attitudes. And uh, there's, you know, um, personality traits like um, uh Conscientiousness, or neuroticism, or um, agreeableness, and there's one called openness. And openness basically describes how open to well, it's openness to experience, how open to experiences you are. And um, what people have found in the lab is that this mere exposure effect isn't doesn't hold for people who are open. If anything, they uh, assign higher value to things that they've heard they're hearing for the first time. So there's one interesting uh, uh, thing that arises from this finding, which is we might have people who are showing the sort of mere exposure effect. They donated because they'd heard the piece, they'd, you know, the track quite well, and they enjoyed hearing it one more time. And the other people who, sorry, the familiar tracks, and the other people who donated to the unfamiliar tracks because mm-hmm. they they rather like hearing something that they haven't heard before. And um, an interesting question is whether if you replicated this study in a smaller city, where perhaps people are less open, <laughs> dare I say? It. I'm just. I don't know for sure. We, I don't know anyone's done a test on the personality traits of yeah. Londoners and other uh, UK cities and personality traits of people in other UK cities. But um, it'd be interesting, for example, to find out, um, perhaps, by adapting this um, experiment that we've carried out um, or the study we found out whether there was a difference in the people who were donating for these two um, types mm-hmm. of music. Uh, these two types of music, and it could be as simple as dragging some of them aside once they've donated a bit further down and saying uh, fill out this personality questionnaire and by the way did you know the track yeah. so I think that's an interesting but basically what we saw was just on average no difference but there might be two competing fact, um, mm-hmm. forces going on there um, I'm and just
0: sort of curious what would the other um, personality type be so if if a character whose values are op- new experience is more likely to no, donate to something that's unfamiliar mm-hmm. to them. What's the other personality type so, that, would, that would value the familiar? <clears throat>
4: um, so there's in in the sort of so-called Big Five uh, sort of um, yeah theory of personality um, or model of p- personalities. There's these five dimensions and. I guess the idea is you could be low or high on the dimension. So the people who would value the novel or unfamiliar music would be people who are high in openness and the people who didn't would be low in openness. So I guess there isn't one particular opposing dimension. You're just sort of on the other end yeah, of the of spectrum. The spectrum. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's
5: really interesting. Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. And the idea of openness has been linked to other sort of psychological concepts like uh, novelty seeking, sensation seeking, mm-hmm. um... Yeah, and certainly openness to experience has been linked to appreciation of the arts, engaging more with um, with the arts and um, yeah, enjoying more mm. sort of contemporary art, et cetera. Mm. Um, but with regard to the second finding, where we didn't see an effect of... Um, so that was the <laughs> second finding. We didn't see an effect of expressivity either. Um, I guess there it's it's not as clear what might be going on. One thing that might be going on is... People sort of—it wasn't the sort of venue where you could stop and watch. It was um, the bottom of a, you know, a extended corridor space, but at the bottom of a, an elevator, just before you turned around to yet another set of elevators, and it wasn't really the kind of place that in London you would think would be <laughs> it would be a good idea to stop and linger. So there is this, um, f- there is the fact that actually people would have had been able to catch a glimpse of the performer. But they wouldn't have had enough time to necessarily be able to discern whether they were more on the um sort of overly expressive uh, side or the less or the sort of yeah, less expressive side. I guess the point is in the end, how much time do you need to decide, Mm. to visually decide something, you know, what's going on. And um, it could be seen as a limitation of the study. It could also just be seen as a reality of a lot of busking experiences where um, unless, you know, there is the space and the time to actually stop, Mm. you might not actually, yeah, take in as much visual information as in other situations like in the concert
0: yeah and that's the you know the underground obviously is primarily commuters obviously you have tourists yeah. as well but yeah it's mainly commuters who are like yeah. that's it i'm getting to their their yeah so
4: at the very least it reminds us that in yeah in certain situations um the visual uh, may play more of a role less of a role than in others mm. in the busking experience where you might still appreciate it but, but you might yeah there's one where you might appreciate it but you know based on basically what you're hearing as you're you know continue to walk along yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it's interesting that you know um, I think you're not supposed to busk there but uh, in Greenwich as you you can pass under the, the Thames to go to the Isle of Dogs, I think it's on mm, the other yeah. side, and you're not supposed to busk in that tunnel, but I uh, often you do see people busking in there, and it takes a few minutes to walk through it, so even though you only see the busker for a short period of time, you mm, can hear them for yes. the full duration. Yeah, yeah
4: I think so. you made your decision by then. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I think that might be very much what's going on. You hear the auditory comes first, and yeah. the auditory in this case was, um, yeah, whether you knew the, the track or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, those were our findings. Um, in general, we were, even though they were uh, sort of null findings, I mean, um, there is a t- general uh, trend to well, more than a general trend, or more than a trend, uh, generally, um, we like to publish findings that show exactly you know, what we hypothesize mm-hmm. might be the case. We found, we thought that the uh, design uh, was strong enough, the implementation was strong enough that um, these so-called null findings, where we don't see a difference between um, conditions, were very much, you know, worth sharing. Um, especially as um, we have some potentially good reasons, um, to, you know, interpretations um, for what, why we're seeing what we're seeing, and it could be seen as a sort of feasibility study for, mm-hmm. you know, that we can we can use to decide where to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: And do you, do you think that your your research unit or your group might? Um, pursue more studies in this area. Is this yeah?
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the f- in the beginning, it was just felt like this crazy idea that Manu had, and um, which um, I thought, well, let's try it out. So let's go and you know find a busker who knows what they're doing, see what uh, where they are in the habit of performing. Let's talk to the London <laughs> underground to see if that's okay with them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to our ethics board here. And now that we know all of that can be done, um, we're encouraged to go ahead and mm-hmm. yeah, follow up on some of the yeah things that we think might be going on, adding bits to the experimental mm-hmm. design or changing the, the f- uh, factors that we investigate th- this next time. Yeah. So some of the things I'd like to do, for instance, uh, um, Yeah, look at situations where, yeah, have the busking take place in situations where actually people can stop and linger, um, because that could be a very interesting um, dependent variable, something that we can measure. Mm -hmm. Um, We couldn't really do this here, like I said, because first of all, (laughs) it's not really a good place to linger, the underground, the corridor on the underground. Um, And also, there would have been issues with sort of recording um, um, in that particular space, but there's, I'm sure that we can find a way of in other spaces where people will linger recording, even if it's just from the top of their heads, some contraption Mm -hmm. um, without invading their privacy. um, How many how long people are lingering for what and why and Mm -hmm. when. And I think it's another way of, in my case, I don't care so much about where people put their money, but where, you know, people are, yeah, moved to stop. (laughs) Mm -hmm. To engage with the the music and the performance. Yeah, Yeah. that's kind of my um, interests are in sort of the aesthetic emotions. Um, sort of transformative experiences how the, what parts of the music might do this you know how that might in, you know and in, in, be influenced by the context um my from my personal experience of you know when i've heard music played on the streets um yeah sometimes it just stops me in my tracks other times not so much mm. and you know seeing what you know investigating what factors
0: um yeah on the individual level it's like super dependent on you know do you have free time at that time yeah. are you going to work are you relaxing on a saturday Yeah. super dependent on all these different
4: yeah, uh, yeah.
0: moments yeah um maybe i guess a, a very final question would be on a practical level how would you what would you say this study tells people who busk
4: mm. um well given that we found that you don't have to play Katy Perry's or Lady Gaga's most popular tracks. Um, at the very least, if you are going to play um, pop music or, you know, music that's quite accessible, perhaps play tracks that people don't know. They'll like it. You'll get just as much, you know, as many donations as if you didn't. And I think, in general, it suggests that even looking at genres or, what you, you know, what styles you decide to play maybe we don't want to necessarily always hear pop music. Maybe we want to hear something that we haven't, we don't hear on the radio all the time. So Mm. by all means, play some experimental music across the, yeah, Yeah.
5: across styles. Uh, I would say play what you like, Uh, play, play the music that, that you want to do because in the end, it doesn't really matter if it's, um, if it's a cover or if it's your original song, if you're performing it well, uh, people will donate money and, um, I think that's that's the biggest takeaway is that you don't have to to pick uh, the most covered songs of all time to make money. You can really do whatever you want, so you're not locked in. <laughs> Experiment a little.
0: Okay, so that is it for this episode. Many thanks to Elizabeth, Diana and Heather for all taking the time to speak to me about their research. You can find biographies and links to their work in the show notes on the Lines on Music website. Thanks also to Les Fonfleur Brass Band for allowing me to use their music and for their contribution to the episode. There's a link to their website on the show notes too. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, leave a positive review on iTunes, and share with those who might be interested. Please also do feel free to offer your feedback about the show or connect with us on Twitter or via our website, www.linesonmusic.com. That is it. Thank you. I'll speak to you next time.